We're uh, starting a new series in the book of Psalms. So open your Bibles right in the middle. And most of you will be there. Some of you will open to Isaiah, go left. Um, And we will be in Psalm 14 uh, today. And uh, so we've already read it once, but I'm going to read it again. So if you get to Psalm 14... Please listen carefully as always, as this is the word of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms this morning to learn more about how to deal with our own foolishness and how to deal with the foolishness of others. And Lord, this is way harder than it sounds. Sometimes we just don't know what to say about either ourselves or our friends. We don't think our words are enough. In fact, we're pretty sure they're not. So we don't say anything. What can we do? So, Lord, teach us what to do. Teach us what to say. Teach us how to pray. Keep us from being fools who deny you by our lives. So build our faith, draw us near, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through this psalm of David this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I wrote you earlier this week and told you this was an unfamiliar psalm because it's about fools who say there is no God. They are a small but vocal minority. Although few in number, they are large in influence. Their voice is heard particularly in the major universities and colleges, public education, the entertainment industry, mainstream media, and most of all, on social media. And yet on a practical, everyday level... They may be your classmate, or your next-door neighbor, or even someone sitting beside you in church, even this morning. Who am I talking about? Atheists. I bring this up because uh, today we're in Psalm 14, and it is an unfamiliar psalm. However, the first line of the psalm is quite familiar. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, in the simplest form of atheism is a worldview that says there is no God, and then attempts to live life from that perspective. And yet the issue is actually a bit more complex than that. Dr. Paul Feinberg, uh, in an article on atheism in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, identifies four forms of atheism. The first one is called classical atheism. And that is not a general denial of God's existence, 
but the rejection of a god of a particular nation or a particular religion. And so in the early church, Christians were repeatedly called atheists in this sense because they refused to acknowledge heathen gods or that there was more than one god. So that's the first one. We, we still see some of that, not so much in this country, but in many other places in the world, this is more common. The second one, which is what most people think about, is called philosophical atheism. And philosophical atheism denies a personal, self-conscious deity, but it might affirm a principle, a first cause, or the force. Now, back in the early 2000s, there was an emphasis on this type of atheism. It focused on scientific evidence and the gathering of facts, and it was largely led by Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. And many Christian thinkers wrote better books answering their arguments, and the movement has largely died down. And while Dawkins is still at it, uh, Harris now runs a wellness site on the dark web, and Hitchens has passed away. One commentator said this movement comprehensively failed to bring about a golden age of rationality and has been replaced in the culture by fact-averse currents like identity politics and social media misinformation. The third form of atheism is called dogmatic atheism. And this is the absolute denial of God's existence. And this position is actually more rare than you might think, as people more often would declare themselves an agnostic or, more today, a secularist. Now, Psalm 14 says that anyone who says in their heart that there is no God is a fool. And Romans 1 explains why. That God has made his existence so obvious in creation that you have to deny the evidence that you're confronted by every day. The revelation of God in creation is open for all to see, no matter who they are or where they live. And yet, because of the power of spiritual blindness and the self-deception of sin, people not only argue against the existence of God, but they'll also disrespect and mock those who believe it. Now, there is a brand new book out, and I brought it here. And by brand new, I mean it came out two weeks ago. And it's called Bulwarks of Unbelief, Atheism and Divine Absence in a Secular Age by Joseph Minnick. Now, a word of warning. This is an academic book. It's very dense. It's not at all easy to read. If you can handle Charles Taylor, you'll like this book. If you don't like Taylor or you don't know who he is, you probably won't like it. So don't run out and, and buy it yet. But the argument of the book, which he takes a couple hundred pages to make, is that there is a new form of an old atheism today. And it's dogmatic because it's based on two things that are hard to argue with. First is the argument that belief in God is not based on either faith or reason, but on emotion. So if you feel a sense of divine absence, then there is no God, at least for you. Because you don't feel that he's there. So rational thought is overruled by emotional feeling. That's the first part. <coughs> the second 
is that this denial of God, determined by feeling a sense of divine absence, (coughs) excuse me, is largely driven by what he calls the techno-cultural phenomenon. What is that? Simply put, it means that most of our labor, our work, education, our school, entertainment, and interaction with others is generally conducted via the use of technology, but most specifically through participation in online networks. And being online all the time changes our perception of reality. Which means if we sense something's presence, even though we're online, and it makes us feel affirmed, then it is real, even if it's not. Hence the great danger of AI misused. And you know it's going to be misused. The implications of this are astounding. That what I sense to be there and how it makes me feel determines whether or not, not if it's true, but if it's real. And if I don't sense it and I can't feel it and I'm not seeing it online, then it's not real. Now, I said, the implications of this are pretty astounding. And the demographic most affected by all of this are teens and 20-somethings, particularly singles that live alone. So what does all this have to do with Psalm 14? And its famous verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Very little, actually. All of this is to get us to focus on the fourth type of atheism, which Psalm 14 is very much concerned with, and that's practical atheism. Practical atheism does not deny God, but life is lived as if there is no God. So there are people who say there is a God. They may even profess faith in the Christian God of the Bible, but then they live as if they don't believe. There is an indifference to his claims. Often there is an outspoken and defiant wickedness. And this form of atheism is widely prevalent, not only in our culture, but has been in all cultures, and it can be seen by how often it's addressed in Scripture. Now, it's true, you won't find the term practical atheist in the Bible, but you will find it described, and you will find it soundly rebuked. And much of the Old Testament is presented in three primary ways. The first is faithfulness versus idolatry. The second is wisdom versus folly. And the third is righteousness versus sinfulness. And our text today implies the use of all three and compares the fool to the righteous. But before we uh, look any deeper into the text, let's back up and ask why the Psalms? Why the Psalms? I've been waiting to do Psalms. Uh, I decided a few years ago that this is one area that's sort of been lacking in my uh, three-plus decades of ministry, so going to be a lot more psalms in your future, at least as long as I'm here. Um, But the short answer to why the psalms is so that we learn to pray them. The primary reason we go to the psalms is not simply to listen to the word of God, although we do that, 
but that we can learn how to speak to God. So the question, why the Psalms, resolves into the question, how do I pray? Because you and I need to pray. Prayer is the lifeblood of the believer, not just at the start of the Christian life, but every day until we die or Jesus returns. Prayer is an urgent and ever-present necessity. Even more, we need to be taught to pray. Jesus taught the pattern of the uh, Lord's Prayer when his disciples asked uh, him to teach them to pray. And the Psalms are like this great big expanded version of the Lord's Prayer. Indeed, it's likely that Jesus himself learned to pray primarily from the Psalms. And he captured the essence of the Psalms in the Lord's Prayer. Now, Paul teaches us both in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that the Psalms are to be a core ingredient in, how we, uh, uh, in what we say and what we sing uh, to each other. And Christian history has followed that tradition until the last 60 years. But before that, the Psalms were the dominant voice of Christian prayer and praise. We actually live in an age of radical abnormality in which the Psalms have been largely lost from our regular corporate praise and prayer. And you may have noticed we've worked hard to reincorporate the use of psalms into our worship service. And so there's some uh, reading of the psalms or prayer of the psalms, some connection to the psalms on virtually every Sunday now. And so in the psalms, we learn to speak back to God all that God has spoken to us. Only God can change the human heart, but he does it through the ministry of the word with prayer. And the psalms have a significant role in that work. They express every aspect of human experience, and they arise from every circumstance of human life. Every human situation is presented in the Psalms. The Psalms anticipate and train us for uh, every possible spiritual, social, or emotional condition. They show us what the dangers are and what we need to keep in mind and what our attitude should be and how to talk to God about it and how to get from God the help that we need. So they gradually reshape our affections and desires so that we love what we ought to love and hate what we ought to hate. And the Psalms help us see God. Not uh, God as we wish or hope him to be, but as he actually reveals himself. And the descriptions of God are rich beyond human invention. He is more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender, and more loving than we can actually imagine him to be. And this brings a reality to our prayer lives that nothing else can do. So that's why starting today, we're going to spend the summer in the Psalms. So let's now turn our attention back to Psalm 14, our first Psalm for the summer. Here, King David uh, tackles this whole idea of belief in God, and he believes with those who don't believe in God, and he calls them fools. So he tells us first what the fool says. If you have the outline from the website, that would be the first blank. What the fool says. Beginning of verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So in this psalm, we can see something of the condition that sin has produced. There is the folly of a man who says there is no God which, as we've seen, is not necessarily a denial of the existence of a divine being, but the idea there's no God for me or hands off my life. That idea of uh, uh, that this is sort of an arrogant refusal to submit to God's sovereignty. 
And the pride of man will simply not seek God. Psalm 10 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So rebellious independence shuts God out and he becomes a stranger. Now, there's lots of competing polls. I tried to look this up and there's just so many uh, to choose from. You don't know what is right. Um, on how many people say they deny God. But most of them say there's only about 4% of Americans who actually identify as atheists. And yet there are many more who fall into the category of practical atheists, people who behave as if there is no God. There are far more practical atheists, both inside and outside the church, than anybody realizes. And so the argument here is the most foolish person in the world is not the person who says he doesn't believe in God. The most foolish person in the world is the person who says he does believe in God, but then doesn't live like it. Now, you may not think that you fall into the category of practical atheist, but let me give you some examples. The person who says he believes in God, but never prays to him or serves him. A person who says that she believes the Bible is God's word, but never reads it or obeys it. The person who says that heaven and hell are real but doesn't care whether others go there or not. The person who says that she believes Sunday is the Lord's Day but spends all her Sundays at the lake or the golf course. If you say you believe in God and yet never adjust your life to that belief, then what good is the faith you claim to have? If God isn't real to you, then you are denying his reality and God has something to say about that. James 2, he says, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Our faith is seen in how we live. Now, what that means is it's not so much in how, we, how much we know. Even brilliant PhDs with genius IQs can be fools. Think about it. They see a car, they believe in a manufacturer. They see a portrait, they believe in an artist. They see a book and believe in an author, but they see creation and refuse to believe in a creator. The reason God calls this person foolish is because deep down he knows there must be a God and yet chooses to believe and act as if there isn't one. Now you can profess faith, but by your actions and lifestyle then deny the reality of God. And God knows what you're doing and he still labels you a fool. Now notice something here. God deals with atheism, unbelief, disbelief, false belief, on a moral level, not an intellectual level. It's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. An atheist is not a person who cannot believe, it is a person who will not believe. And God is a threat to those who want to be their own God. Think about it, if there's no God, there's no judgment. If there's no judgment, there's no eternal punishment. If there's no eternal punishment, you can leave, live freely without any consequences. The reason an atheist cannot find God is the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. They don't want to find God because they know if they do, it will force them to change how they live. Now, we need to give atheists some credit because they do live by a strong faith. 
Don't ever let the pseudo-intellectuals ridicule you because as a Christian you live by faith. The truth of the matter is they do too. In fact, William Rowe, who's a professor at Purdue University, once admitted to his class, quote, even as the evangelical Christian accepts God by faith, I reject the idea of God by faith. I cannot reject God by reason alone, for there is simply too much evidence of his existence. It is by faith that I am an atheist. The well-known theologian and apologist Dr. Norman Geisler once wrote a great book on the subject entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And that is one I would recommend to you. Um, Dr. Frank Turek has a podcast by the same name. So that's what the fool says. But more importantly, this psalm looks at what the fool does. What the fool does. Picking up verse 1 through verse 6. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So he says, verse 2, nobody in this world is looking for God. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if any who understand who seek after God. Now, fortunately, God is seeking us. And we all give him a response. Now, we either detest him or deny him, or we delight in him. Now, detesting God is not an innocent act. To detest something means to hate it. And when you grow to detest or despise God, you will also not just hate God, but you'll hate his people because you don't want to be reminded of the possibility of God. He says, have they no knowledge? And David's writing, and he actually says, evildoers, they eat my people like bread. David saw what we see. People not only attack God, but they attack the people of God. And not surprisingly, it increasingly seems that God's people have a target on their back, not necessarily for what they do, but for what they believe. Now, some of these verses sound familiar because the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3. It's a great passage in the New Testament describing universal human sinfulness. And so read it, Romans 3, uh, verses 9 through 18. It'll be quick. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's Psalm 14. He goes on, he quotes, All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Apostle Paul is quoting from six different psalms here, including Psalm 14. And we can see why he does so. When you read this, as something of a sobering indictment. And just as Paul does in the New Testament, so here... Psalm 14, King David is emphasizing that not a single person acts justly throughout his life. 
We live in a world that does not operate the way it was meant to. It's filled with sickness, disease, strife, dishonesty, theft, backbiting, bitterness, selfishness. You can go on and on. A world that is, was created to be beautiful has become ugly in so many ways, brought to ruin through mankind's sin. And that's what the fool says, and that's what the fool does. But one of the amazing things about this psalm is it also tells us what the fool needs. What the fool needs. I'm going to go back to verse 5 and, and pick up there. There, there in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So King David tells us that God is with the generation of the righteous. The righteous are those who not only believe in God, but seek God, want to know God, and want to live for God. God's seen primarily not by the eyes in their head, but by the eyes of their heart, which is something we prayed for this morning. That's not coincidental. So the question is, does this describe you? This is what a relationship with God looks like. He is with you. You cannot have a relationship with God until you know God personally, which means you believe he exists and you gain in an act, or engage in an actual relationship with him. You can have a real relationship with God only by faith, and that actually bothers a lot of people, but it shouldn't. And the psalmist is reminding us that you can know God, you can talk with God, you can walk with God, you can experience God, you can spend eternity with God. God will not force himself on you. You can, if you choose, deny the reality of God. You can, if you choose, detest any response to God. So what do we do with people who make those choices, who either deny the reality of God or detest any response to God? What this verb, psalm, calls fools. It also says that we pray. That's our response. We pray. Verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We pray for people, and then we talk with them. We probe and push them gently, but firmly toward the place where they can see that unwelcome tension between what they believe and what is real. Not just what they feel is real, because eventually those feelings are going to fail them. Those feelings will change, and that creates an unwelcome tension inside them. Whatever people say about God, whether they ignore him, deny him, hate him, or scorn him, we always know two things about those people. First, they themselves are made in the image of God. And second, they are living in the world of God's reality. So whatever they claim... And there's probably some truth and falsehood in their belief. But that tension can be found somewhere between who they are and living in the world of God's reality and what they're claiming. Now, if you ever witness someone who is close to that tension point uh, before God, it's a sobering moment. Only God knows when that moment truly comes. We don't always know. It's not our business to know. But it's surely the moment when before God, they just know they are without excuse. They have seen the truth. They know the truth. They're responsible for the truth they now know. And it's seemingly all the excuses are stripped away. All the alibis are exposed. And in their heart of hearts, they know where they stand. 
and they're responsible at that moment, at that decisive moment of truth. Now, needless to say, that moment of truth doesn't mean that everyone is persuaded by that truth. For even at that point, they still have the choice, as one author says, to either fall on their knees or turn on their heels. For those who fall on their knees, knees, it's that moment when their unbelief is shown up as inadequate, when they face up to reality and accept the logic of God's truth that undeniably points to God himself. The opposite response is equally possible. A person can turn on their heels and run from God, and many do. But they can delight in a relationship with God. But to do that, they have to stop living foolishly. You see, fools don't understand Zion. The last verse in the psalm talks about what fools need. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people out of Zion, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. What's Zion? If you read the Psalms, you'll need to understand that. If you don't understand what Zion is, you're going to have a lot of trouble with this book. At the end of almost every Psalm, there's a few exceptions, but almost every Psalm, there's always hope. In spite of how bad everything looks, the cavalry shows up at the end. Sometimes God's grace shows up at the end of the Psalms, and this is it. Now, literally, Zion is the hill in Jerusalem that the temple was built on. But more broadly, it refers to the place where God dwells. And what's being said here is that God's salvation will come out of Zion, out of the temple. What is this out-of-Zion out logic? Well, what's the temple? The temple is the place where God dwells. That's where his glory is found. And his glory wouldn't threaten you. You couldn't just walk into the temple anytime you want. You'd have to bring a sacrifice. And his glory wouldn't threaten you if you approached him at the temple. If you approached him and you brought a blood sacrifice and spread it on the altar, and God says, I'll meet you over the sacrifice. We can go back to Exodus and Leviticus, and all that's explained in great detail. So what does this have to do with foolishness? Everything. It's everything to do with foolishness. Foolishness is that part of our heart that's threatened by God. Think about it. We don't like people to tell us what, what to do. And sadly, that starts at a very early age. We don't like somebody greater than us to show us what we have to do. We don't like that. That's what sin is. It's foolishness. And you can, you can hear people talk like that all the time. I can go to the Grand Canyon. I can go to the beach. I can go to the mountains. I can get near God there. And the Bible says, don't. You have to go to the temple. Because in the temple, God says, I can accept you, even with all your foolishness, but only if a substitute pays the penalty with his blood. There has to be a sacrifice. And then Jesus says in John 2, I'm the temple. That's the place where he tells the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was referring to himself, talking about his resurrection. He's saying, I'm the temple, I'm the sacrifice, I'm the one who sheds my blood, I'm the way for you to come to God, I'm the way through which your foolishness can be forgiven. I'm the way in which you can meet God. And what's so ironic is in 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul says the cross is foolishness to the world, 
Because the heart of the fool says, I don't want your charity. I can do it myself. I'm good enough. I live a decent enough life. I don't need you. That's the fool. The fool doesn't understand grace. And it's grace that's at the heart of the gospel. And therefore, the cross is foolishness. And yet, we know the cross is actually the greatest and highest act of wisdom that has ever happened. It was on the cross that God, in one event, could on the one hand honor the law by showing how important it was that sin was paid for, and at the same time save us by having Jesus pay our penalty. So justice and mercy is satisfied and fulfilled at the same time. That's wisdom. But for the world, it's foolishness. Now, a Christian is somebody who knows that he or she is a fool. A fool is someone who thinks that he or she is not a fool. We're all foolish, and the only way to keep from being a fool is to realize it. It's to realize you're foolish, and then approach the Father through Jesus, through the temple, through Zion, and that changes everything. Things that used to look foolish now look wise. Things that used to look wise now look foolish. When you really get a hold of Zion logic, when you really get a hold of the grace of God, you realize that salvation comes out of Zion. The believer figures out it's, it's Jesus. He's the temple. He's the sacrifice. The believer figures out that the way to get near him without aggravating the foolishness of your own heart is to simply admit, okay, I'm a fool. I'm proud. My heart has false gods. My heart is filled with idols. As Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. But now I see that Jesus died for me, and I see that the cross, far from being foolishness, is wisdom. And that my wisdom, far from being wisdom, is foolishness. And Paul says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And the cool thing is salvation not only comes out of Zion, but salvation will ultimately bring us to Zion. We see that in Hebrews 12. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Salvation will come out of Zion. The word salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua. The name Jesus comes from that word. When Christ was born, he was given the name Jesus. God saves. Because Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their uh, sins. I hear that a lot at Christmas. I can't help but think, this is just me thinking that when Jesus read Psalm 14, he must have thought, I've come. Salvation has come out of Zion. I'm salvation. I'm the savior of my people. Jesus is the ultimate answer to David's prayer. Jesus is the ultimate answer to our prayer. And Jesus is the ultimate answer to our prayer for the fools in our lives. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
the Christian says, there is. What do you say? Go ahead and tell God, and then pray for someone who doesn't think they can. Do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to consistently demonstrate our faith by our actions. We don't mean to deny you, but we live as if we are. We don't intend to ignore your word, but we live as if it makes no difference. We don't plan on forgetting to pray, but we often do. Oh, Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And, Lord, if anyone here this morning is unsure of who you are, of what you say, of your creation, providence, or sovereignty, if they're in denial of your reality, reveal yourself to them. Draw near to them. Enlighten the eyes of their hearts so they might place their faith in you. Help us to pray for them. Help us to be prepared to make a defense to them and to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet enable us to do it with gentleness and respect. And so work in each of our hearts this summer as we turn to the Psalms, as we learn about prayer, and draw us ever closer to the one who's taught us to pray. Join with me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen.